It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The Cricket Badger Podcast with Cricket 365. The Cricket World Cup 2019. Afghanistan. Australia. Bangladesh. England. India. New Zealand. Pakistan. South Africa. Sri Lanka. West Indies. Let's pick the bones out of this tournament. With your host James Butler, Cricket 365 Zoli Fisher, and journalist Akash Shiva Subramaniam. Hello everybody, welcome along to another edition of the Cricket Badger World Cup Weekly in association with Cricket 365 and Paddy Power. We spent the last few hours watching England beating New Zealand at Chesterley Street. England, they've stood up to the pressure, they've beaten India and they've beaten New Zealand. They're into the semi-finals and joining me to celebrate on the podcast this week is Ollie. You must be delighted, sir. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely magnificent after that. I know that I've sort of doubted the mental resolve of this England team in previous podcasts, but, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted to be proven wrong. And there's a man on the podcast last week who said in one of his predictions that England, when they're under pressure, they don't perform. Akash, are you going to eat those words? I, I, I'm afraid I have to eat those words. It's been a good week for England. Uh, they played really well. And uh, the return of Jason Roy definitely helped them and definitely helped best. So we can see the results immediately. Let's talk about a meeting they had after the, well, the disappointment of losing to Sri Lanka. I think there was a hangover going into that Australian game. And I think the squad then sat down, Ollie, and they started to talk about getting back to what had got them to world number one, playing fearless cricket, going out there and dominating games. And that meeting, they need to have that again, don't they? Because it seems to have done the trick. It came at a very important time. And I think it was sort of after, you know, when I mentioned on the last podcast that, that there needs to be there needs to be some kind of um, meeting in the dressing room whereby some, some kind of home truths need to come out and everything needs to be to be levelled once again and that's exactly what we've seen it's clearly had a beneficial impact on the team you know Joe 
Root's words in that press conference that came not long after Owen Morgan's, you know, before the India game, they, they ring true now. It's about backing the other 10 players that you're on the field with and understanding that we're number, well, we were going into the tournament number one ODI ranked side for a reason. Don't fear anybody. Go out there, back your own ability. We're looking back now. After a couple of massive, massive wins and thinking it's been an absolute godsend to kind of have that chat and just to just to get everything on in order once again. And Wally, going into this tournament, host nation, world number one, a lot of expectation, not just from in, within the squad, but from journalists and, and supporters alike. Getting to the semi-finals was pretty much seen as the bare minimum. So there must be a little bit of a weight off their shoulders now because they've, they've done the hard bit. You know, two games, they could be world champions. There's, there's nothing really to lose because any one of the four sides could win this World Cup. Yeah, I think I think the last part of that ring that is definitely true. You know, and any one of the sides that meet, makes the semi-finals must fancy themselves and for the very right reasons. In terms of England's standpoint, I think that they will certainly head into it with at least a marginal boost because they've sort of battled through the adversity in the group stage and they've come through that that period of trial and and have somehow qualified for the for the semi-finals and players must be looking at themselves in that dressing room after today and thinking that is exactly the reason that that we think we can go on and lift that trophy in a couple of weeks time you know there's probably a lot of England fans who were feeling exactly the same I'm happy now because I was I was fearing a, a semi-finals without England and I don't think that anybody really aside from sort of Pakistan fans maybe Bangladesh fans I don't think anybody would have wished against that because the idea of us sort of heading into the semi-finals hopefully a final going to be magnificent here on home soil and Akash you mentioned Jason Roy at the start of the uh, the podcast but his partnership at the top of the order with Johnny Bairstow he sense it's starting to become something which England are almost relying upon you know it's so instrumental isn't it in taking them onto a good score I really think Jason Roy is the glue to English batting order at times when he's missing the likes of James even the likes of Moeen Ali even promoted has not done the job as, as a Jason Roy who is even if he's, he's there on the pitch even if he's just scored 30-20 runs it still makes a huge difference to the team rather than somebody else playing so I think he's the glue to English batting order with Jason Roy's presence, I think it has lifted Besto's performance as we could see in the last two games. Besto has played way better than he has played in the, the rest part of the tournament when he was missing Jason Roy. Probably Jason Roy has a huge influence on the pitch. I think that's, that's really paying off for England at the moment. I just heard Michael Vaughan say that if England win the toss twice, they win the World Cup. Because the toss, Akash, is starting to become quite important. The team batting first, if they can get any semblance of a decent score on the board, stand a very good chance of winning the games. It's become a pattern, this World Cup. Before the World Cup, we've always talked about how chasing has become easier in the limited overs or even ODI, but I think when pressure situations like this, when the World Cup is there, uh, chasing has become difficult. Throughout the, throughout the tournament, we've seen a lot of sides fail when they, they, they're chasing, but when they're batting, they, they play extremely well and they could score 350 and on. I don't know what's odd about this tournament, but uh, chasing has not been a thing. It looks like it's going to be England at Edgebaston against either Australia or India. If they stay in the same order, if India and Australia win their final game, Ollie, it will be a repeat of that India game at Edgebaston on Thursday. England surely take a lot of confidence from the, the win that they had before. Yeah, they must do. It was a very, very convincing win um, that we that we had a few days ago. And it was one that was massively needed. Obviously, at the time, we were fighting for our tournament lives. And you can say what you want about the way that India played in that game. But in terms of a run chase, they didn't really get close. What, what should have been a, a score that they would have backed themselves to get near to. It's different, obviously, when it's knockout cricket. And England, in the past, this has been their hurdle. So it, it's going to be massively different, obviously, 
we've seen going into this tournament we'd beaten Pakistan 4-0 in a five game series and then we entered the group stage of a World Cup and we lost to them so I think it'll be a case of if we were to meet India in the semi-finals or even if we were to meet Australia in the semi-finals it'd be a case of resetting what's happened in the past just focus on what you do best hopefully win the toss and bat first that seems to be a big thing for us at the moment basically hope that it's your day and if we were to get through that semi-finals and get to the final then I, I guess it's anybody's anybody's for the winning I've said this before on this podcast but I, I just as, a, as an England supporter when they bat first they seem to play better cricket they, they stick a score on the board they play less fearlessly with the bat they just go out there and try and get as big a score as possible they read the pitch obviously and they adapt to those circumstances and then they, they trust their bowlers to limit the opposition to less runs it just feels like a better way for England to do it Ollie yeah it does and most teams would prefer to play that way most teams most captains would prefer to bat first and get serious runs on the board uh, if their team is capable of doing so like this England team definitely is prefer to get the runs on the board and then bat their bowlers to defend that with scoreboard pressure we don't seem to be as comfortable chasing exact same can be said about New Zealand really and that was why as soon as we won the toss everybody was thinking let's get get over 300 on the board and really don't bat them to chase it it's just the way that we are we you know we've on paper the strongest batting lineup in this World Cup currently so if you get to bat first while the pitch has still got a bit of zip to it while you can still exploit runs and exploit the gaps in the power play while you can still sort of nerdle it around in the middle overs and while you can still go big in the final overs get a score on the board and then like I say, you've got to back your bowlers when they're defending over 300 and ultimately that's proved to be a winning formula for us in recent times, not just in this World Cup. I think if, if there is one sort of negative from this, it is how massive the toss is going to be uh, when it comes around to those semi-finals. If we were to lose the toss and get put into bat, I think all of a sudden the narrative will change and it'll be like, how do, how do England win against such a massive hurdle again? We've got to remain optimistic, haven't we? Akash, Oli said there that England need to reset because now it's knockout cricket. But in a way, they went into those last two games of the group phase against India and then against New Zealand, knowing that they probably had to win both of those to get through. So effectively, they played last 16 cricket against India, quarter-final cricket against New Zealand. They just take that same mentality into the semi-final, don't they? Uh, certainly take the same mentality going into the semi-finals. Also, they'll be confident that they face two of the better sides in the World Cup, and they could be like confident about their chances going into the semi-finals. But there's... There's one thing that, is, that we have seen throughout the tournament, that is the conditions while chasing has been tough. We've seen the pitch getting a little slower. We've seen uh, not only the, the pressure of runs on board, but also the pitch has gotten a little slower and the boundaries seem a little longer than batting first. So that, and then secondly, uh, I think England have found the right combination. Last week we were discussing about the ins and outs of who could, who could be in the squad. And uh, certainly they found the way that Moen Ali doesn't belong to this playing eleven in such conditions. Certainly because of that, they have seen the results. And Liam Plunkett has, has been genuinely outstanding in the last two games. He's, he's managed to get pickets. He's managed to score runs. I think they've found the right combination. Certainly they'll be fit uh, and ready for the semi-finals. It just makes sense, the Liam Plunkett thing, doesn't it? When, when he's played, England have won. When he's not played, England have lost. It's as simple as that. And his record over the last 12 months of taking wickets in those middle overs. Yeah, taking wickets is the best way of stopping a, a batting side's momentum. And Liam Plunkett, as you say, Akash, he, he belongs in this team, doesn't he? he? He certainly fits in this team like any other player. The, the fact that he can bring a, a dimension in the middle overs that he can 
pick wickets or if he's not picking wickets, he can contain runs. That makes it more and more uh, important for the team. When he came against India, he picked, he picked up important wickets. It's not just three wickets, it's important wickets at the important time. Certainly, you could say that if Kohli and Rohit Sharma stayed on for another 20 overs, it might have been a scare, might not, not have been a victory for sure, but it, it definitely would have been a scare for England. The Cricket Badger podcast is brought to you in association with Cricket365.com. Their ethos, we love cricket and want to make the world love it as much as we do. Join them at Cricket365.com. Thank you very much to them for their support of the Cricket Badger podcast. Waka Yunus in particular came out on Twitter and effectively accused India of of throwing the match, playing without any intent towards the end, had no intention of beating England. I read it a completely different way to a a lot of the pundits. I was commentating on on that game, so I watched every single ball of it, and I just felt that England had got too many runs on the board. India play a different type of one-day cricket. They go slower in the power play overs the first 10, so it was no surprise, because Chris Wokes bowled really well in that first 10 overs, so no surprise that India had only got, I think, 28-29 for one on the board after 10 mm-hmm. overs. Downey may not quite have the capacity for the fireworks at the end of the innings that he used to have. But as soon as Hardik Pandya was out, they realised that they weren't going to beat England, effectively protected their net run rate, and, and went within their shell within that game. But for most of that game, for probably 90% of that match, India were trying to win that game. It's very, very cynical to suggest that India weren't trying to win the game. Obviously, they've absolutely been out to win that game in front of a, an absolutely raucous crowd. And I think you're right. England, obviously, batting first, will have will have absolutely got a wind in their sails. And they put a, a very, very good score on the board in 3-3 seven in my opinion it's very hard as has been proven in world cup history to chase down the score like that and you're right in what you say that india tend to go about chasing totals or even setting totals in a different way rather than think that you have to go hell for leather during the power play they tend to build incrementally through the 10 over period so in the first 10 overs they'll make sure that they don't lose a wicket or at the very least they don't lose more than one and then they'll build and build and build um obviously through the likes of rohit and, and Kohli and rashad pan and it, it was a it was a run chase that honestly for a long period period didn't feel like England were in complete control of. Um, it felt like the usual traits of an ODI would come through in that we'd take wickets because the rate would keep going up and up and up and there'd be, there'd be catch opportunities, all that kind of stuff. At no point did England feel that, that India had got massively ahead of the rate and then we, we took a couple of wickets at key points, especially taking Ruit when we did and getting rid of Hardik Pandya when we did was absolutely massive in terms of just wrestling back that complete control. And then the last 10 overs were kind of curious because I think they needed a 104 off the last 10 overs which if it's a T20 it's not completely out of reach but the fact that they fell more than 30 short was perhaps a little bit curious. The weird thing for me was that as soon as the chase became mathematically impossible with 7 balls to go, Dhoni, the ball after that, clubbed one into the stand so that kind of gave a little bit of fuel to those cynics who said that India were kind of almost deliberately trying to lose by, but not by a massive margin in order to not stand out. But I don't, I don't buy into any of that kind of stuff to be honest. 
that is, Ollie, because the way the net run rate is, and we're going to have a big discussion on net run rate in a second, mm-hmm. but if you are bowled out within your 50 overs, your run rate is basically divided by the full 50. So if you bowl that, say, mm-hmm. in 35 overs, you're still, it's still divided by 50. So India were protecting their net run rate, so Dhoni knew that if they got bowled out, say, in the 46th over, net run rate would be affected. But if they're bowled out in the 50th over, then it won't be affected. So he can just open his shoulders and it doesn't really matter what happens for a bear. They were never going to be bowled out, though. Going into that 40th over, though, they were still three down. You should never, ever be bowled out from there. The thing with India, Ollie, and this is my big thing with India, is that, you know, you look at their top order, Ravit Sharma, fantastic, Virat Kohli, the best batsman in the world. You know, you've got Rishabh Pant in there now, who I think is one of the best young players in the world. But you get down to number sort of five and six, and you've got Dhoni there, who is more attuned to finishing in innings. And you then have Hardik Pandya at number seven, who is a hitter. You know, that, that is how he plays. You don't want to see him in there in the 25th, 28th over. And we've seen in this tournament that when India have lost early wickets and they find themselves maybe five down with still 20 to play, Dhoni's left at the crease, not knowing quite what to do because he knows that then number eight, nine, ten and eleven are, are quite literally tail-enders and you can blow them away. So if you lose a, lose a wicket then... India could be rolled over very quickly. And that, that's what I think is always at the back of their minds. When they, they come into those kind of areas of a match, they're very worried that a couple more wickets and all of a sudden you've got Jasprit Bumrah, etc., coming into the crease who are not classified as bats at all. I mean, the, the scenario that you described there with Dhoni coming in sort of halfway through the innings is a little bit different to the one that was going on. I mean, there were three wickets down, uh, 11 overs to go, and there was still an attainable target on the board. You should not get bowled out you know, with seven wickets remaining, 11 overs to go. As much as you might say they've got a long tail or whatever, as soon as you get to sort of seven or eight down, well, you know then to put the blockers in and accept what you've got. And even then, if you were to get bowled out with, say, three overs to go, because of the way that net run rate's calculated, which is obviously something we'll come on to, it wouldn't make a massive difference. I think, yeah, it was a bit of a curious run chase, and I think it's a bit cynical to suggest that they didn't really go for it, but at the same time, I don't think you can accuse them of protecting net run rate either. I think it was just one of those where there were too many runs on the board and a combination of our squeeze bowling in in that last 10 overs and the fact that they had two not-so-established players at the crease ultimately got us over the line. Dhoni, though, ended up with 42 off 31, so you can't really, like I say, you can't accuse them of trying to protect anything. Akash, the political rivalry between... Pakistan and India did lead to a lot of that fallout from that game. Pakistan is accusing India of kind of letting England win to eliminate Pakistan. Can you see any any validity in any of the arguments that you heard? I really don't think there is any validity in that because, first of all, no country should be dependent on the other for uh, qualifying to, to the knockout stages. And uh, certainly Pakistan should not, have, uh, should not have been head up on India to win against England. And uh, secondly, I, I think the run chase was a little bit uh, curious, yes. But I think the pitch got more and more uh, two-paced and uh, hitting was definitely not easy on the track. If the likes of Hardik Pandya could not hit properly after, after a point, then certainly the pitch has got something for the bowlers. Uh, we've seen Hardik Pandya, uh, how he is in form when on a flat track. And on that day, if he could not score well, that, that certainly means there's something for the bowlers. So... There's no, there's nothing wrong in India playing out the 50 overs and uh, preserving the net run rate because it might even come to a situation where there there'll be a place of between second and third and it might it might uh, end up on the net run rate and if you look at that I think India did a 
good thing by not uh, losing all their wickets and then giving England a huge victory. The run chase, yes, was curious because India could not find the combinations right and they could not give the give the players a certain role. That's that's where they were lacking in that game. If Dhoni had come before Hardik Pandya and Hardik Pandya was there for the last ten overs, the the result might have been different. Probably not. Uh, India might not have not won the game, but the uh, result might have been different. We've also seen Hardik Pandya playing in the IPL, second behind Andre Russell in strike rate in the last IPL. He's capable of incredible innings. And I was watching that match closely, and he was trying to hit the ball hard. He was trying to find the fence. So was Domi at some stages. There wasn't a lack of intent, though. No. I think, I guess it was just that England bowled quite well at them. England found their length and uh, lines, and they, they mixed up with the slower deliveries, which is where India were finding it difficult to hit. MS Dhoni a lot of times could not hit the slower bouncer or the slower outside the off uh, kind of deliveries for maximums or for boundaries. And they, they, they may actually made fullest use of the boundaries, the short boundaries and the long boundaries. They actually knew where the short boundary and they bowled to that length. And that's certainly where India were lacking when they were bowling because they didn't know quite exactly where the short boundaries or they could they didn't calculate accordingly and they played two spinners, which, which actually helped England to clear the boundaries with much more ease than it would have been if a pace bowler was bowling at them. Virat Kohli's comments about the short boundary at Edgebaston seemed to me to be rather strange because he could see the pitch when he was presumably um, picking the final 11. That short boundary is there for his shots as well as it is for England's shots. I, I couldn't quite work out what he was trying to say. Neither could I, to be honest. I don't understand it. You know, it, it's a short boundary for both teams. It's not as if for England it's, it's 10 yards further in than, than what it is for India. And honestly, if I was an Indian player, I'd be kind of a little bit insulted from that as if to suggest that basically implying that England have got the better batting lineup, and therefore that's why we were able to exploit the short boundary. And I'd, I'd feel a little bit a little bit aggrieved by that. I'd, I don't know what his argument is. Is it that they're not used to to playing with short boundaries for me it's an excuse once again from Coley as he's come up with time and time again an excuse as to why they weren't able to execute their game plan the best that they wanted I mean the actual quote that he said was something about if batsmen are able to reverse sweep you for six on a 59 metre boundary there's not much that you could do as a spinner it's like honestly you should be able to bowl bowl a line or length or whatever where you shouldn't get reverse swept for six at any point I think for me it's just excuses I know you're, you're very much a, a campaigner for why Virat Kohli is, is you know one of the best players at this tournament but he's nowhere near one of the better captains yeah it's strange comments from him very very strange comments but we should perhaps come to expect it by now didn't he get caught out on that short boundary in the in the very next game I think he did yeah I think he did which kind of disproves his point to be honest because he <laughs> should be able to go out and make an example of it but I understand it to an extent because he's trying to deflect some of the blame from his own players after that that England game and, and sort of saying well you know this isn't the kind of thing the, the kind of setup that we're used to or whatever but yeah, like I say it's just, it's just a little bit strange if anything I'd be saying there's no excuses you know we know to execute better than what we did let's let's move on Akash with the fielding substitutions that we've seen Ravinder Jadeja seems to have spent more time on the pitch for India than he has sat in the dugout he hasn't played a game yet but he seems to have played most of the time that India has spent in the field because he's one of their gun fielders and he seems to come on at every you know somebody stubs their toe and suddenly feigned injury Jadeja comes on we've seen that as well with England to be honest when Jason Roy came back in massive talk about his hamstring injury he batted batted really well but then didn't take the field and James Vince came on in his stead because oh he got hit by a ball when he was batting he seems to be fine with it now are teams stretching the rules Akash a little bit here I don't think the teams are stretching any rules and 
So I, that's how ICC has panned it out. So I don't think they're stretching the rules either. And if this is the if genuinely the the player is not fit to take the field, then they should there should be a sub. Uh, for example, the Jason Roy situation. If Jason Roy had fielded for 35 overs or 40 overs, uh, for example, he might have just injured his uh, anything ankle or hamstring again, and that could have just been the end of the World Cup for him. Uh, luckily. Just because we had substitutions in place, you could see a James Wins coming and fielding sort of Jason Roy. I think that's good for uh, preserving injuries, but uh, certainly in the in the case of India, it's, it's become more curious because Jadeja has not just fielded, but he's also affected run outs, he's caught, and he's, he's made a lot of impact as, as just a substitute. So I can't think that uh, the teams have gone beyond the ICC rule. So I don't think there's anything wrong here. Are, are you telling me, Akash, then, that India, in their last 20 overs in the field, have always got an injured player? Because he's always on that pitch when it really matters for them. And he is a fantastic fielder. No, I don't think it's a, it's a plan that they have thought of before the tournament. Or there is not something that they have penned down saying that last 20 overs that is, must be on the field. There must have been some situations where some fielder has gone out because of certain reasons. And I don't think it's a it's a plan from India to field Jadeja just for, for the sake of it. Are you as convinced, Oli? Uh, no, no, I'm not as convinced. I know I said, you know, not to be cynical about the way that the game's played when talking about the India v England game. But in this sense, I think it's too obvious to kind of deny. I've seen some places label Jadeja as the super sub of international cricket which I kind of think is, is a fitting way to look at him obviously he's taken some very very important catches already towards the business end of this tournament he produced an acrobatic uh, effort against Jason Roy he caught Ben Stokes he then he, he caught Glenn Maxwell as well you know there's been a, and Adam Zamper there's been a few instances where he's been involved in the game and ultimately you've got to think this is a this is a guy who bowls slow left arm and, and would normally bat down the order ultimately he's out there as a field he's out there's a specialist fielder more than anything. The problem is perhaps not necessarily with India's exploitation, if you want to call it that, of the rules. It's more that the rules are there to be able to be bent in this way. I'm not sure what the solution is, but essentially, if you're going to have a situation where you can you can put on your best fielder in, in place of somebody, then we might as well have it like baseball, you know, where at any point you can call a substitution and, and get a better athletic fielder out there to defend the lead or whatever. For me, it, cricket should be 11 v 11. There should be no element of a 12th player that can alter the impact of the game artificially. And that's what we've seen. I think there needs to be some kind of crackdown on it. I'm not saying that India are wrong taking advantage of that, but I think that perhaps, you know, if it carries on, especially if it to have kind of meaningful impact come the knockout stages what be the last that we hear of it he has become a bit of the Gary Pratt hasn't he of the World Cup 2019 yeah. Gary Pratt run out in the 2005 Ash he still talked about to the, this day and you're not telling me I mean K.L. Rahul to be fair to him I think he actually was debilitated because he fell on the rope he jarred his back and he was replaced by Jadeja so maybe in that game I can understand why Jadeja came on to protect one of their star batsmen but you're not telling me that if Rahul had still been on that pitch fielding at long on, he would have caught Jason Roy in the same way that uh, Jadeja did. It was, a, it was a stunning piece of fielding and one that was beyond Rahul. Uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. That's, 
that's the way that it is. I mean, you look at certain certain fielders that you were considered to be among the elite in world cricket and, and think, well, there's only those that could be capable of certain catches. We've seen, obviously, the ones with, with Ben Stokes and Chris Wokes for England during this tournament so far, but you think, well, they're in the 11 to begin with kind of thing, and, and as such, you get to appreciate it in all its beauty that moment. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, if Jadeja wasn't on the field, that wouldn't have been a wicket. So for me, that is kind of altering the outcome of where the, where the game may go. But wait, I don't know where you draw the line because if there is genuine injuries, then in my opinion, yeah, there the, the should be substitute fielders available. And it's where we to suggest, and this is a very, very sort of controversial area, where you start suggesting that teams are, are faking injuries in order to get their best fielders out there. That's when you're starting to, to tread in dangerous water. You know, eyebrows have well, been raised and, and for the right reasons. Well, to be honest, I am suggesting that because I think India have had some stub toes that, wouldn't have otherwise have been there if they hadn't had a substitute fielder. So and we'll come on to the champagne moment later because that Jadeja catch is still very much in my mind for that award this week. So I think it was a superb piece of fielding. I'm reluctant to give it to him because of what we just talked about. The listeners to the Cricket Badger podcast have gone up by 580% in the last 12 months. Thank you so much for all of your support for the Cricket Badger podcast. And if you want to advertise on the show, well, of course you can. You're more than welcome to play your part as the podcast goes from strength to strength. We get in front of a lot of people out there. It's a real opportunity for you to put your business in front of the cricket world. Get in touch with us, cricketbadger at hotmail.com. Become part of the Cricket Badger family. Let's move on, fellas, to this net run rate situation because this is something which is ruining the World Cup for me or certainly tainting it to a degree. We saw today New Zealand just basically bail out of a run chase because they were protecting their net run rate. They got bowled out just short of the 50 overs in the end, but there was no intent from them whatsoever to go for the England total, and that was purely because they didn't want to get bowled out far short of the 50 overs for fear of giving Pakistan just a bit of a a squeak of taking their place in the semi-finals. That looks ridiculously unlikely at the moment because Pakistan's task against Bangladesh is huge. You know, I've got a table here in front of me. If Pakistan bowl first against Bangladesh, they simply can't qualify. If Pakistan bat first and score 350, they need to beat Bangladesh by 311 runs. If they score 400, they need to beat them by 316 runs. If they score 450, they need to beat them by 321 runs. You might as well stop now, to be honest, mate. It isn't going to happen, is it? So New Zealand defending that net run rate to me today seemed a little bit silly. You might as well just try and take some blood off a potential semi-finalist because you might meet them in the final. I couldn't really see why New Zealand were doing it in that instance. But we have seen in this tournament matches just completely change shape because of teams protecting their net run rate. I'll take you back to the West Indies against Australia. Australia lost loads of wickets early. They managed through Stephen Smith and Nathan Coulter-Nile and Alex Carey to get up to a total which they ultimately could defend. And West Indies went into the final two overs of their chase, needing, I think, 31 or 32 runs to beat Australia. Now, West Indies teams of old would have swung from the hip, would have tried to hit sixes, would have probably fallen short but they would have tried. What happened was they played out, I think, a maiden in the 49th over, and then in the 50th over, where it wouldn't affect the net run rate, they scored four fours and finished 15 runs short, which made a bit of a very strange feel towards the end of that game. It's not the only game that's been changed because of teams trying to protect their net run rate. 
I think the net run rate is having a really adverse effect on this tournament. I know, Ollie, you haven't got any massively fixed opinions on this, so you're going to listen to me and Akash talking about this. But off the back of me and Akash talking about this, I'd really be interested to see where you come in in terms of this net run rate argument. Mm -hmm. But Akash, you're for this, aren't you, Akash? Do you think the net run rate is a good divider? I think it's a good divider because of the format of the World Cup. Uh, So let's uh, look at it this way. So if the format of the World Cup was group stages and then you proceeded on and on. And then that at that stage, I would say that it's, it's not the best way to get into the qualifiers. But uh, at this stage, let's look at these situations. If a team is consistently played uh, poorly, they, they have to or they ought to have a poor net run rate, and uh, which will make a huge difference. If the team has been playing consistently well, so they'll have a good run rate, which, which, uh, which I think uh, should be the format and I think is the right format because... It, it shows up. Uh, if you play consistent cricket, it shows up uh, at the end of your tally, sh- saying that your net run rate is this much, plus 2 or plus 1.7, whatever. Uh, if you've not played uh, good cricket, if you've played poor cricket, then certainly it, it makes a huge difference. So let's look at this situation. If Pakistan had not uh, played terribly against West Indies in the first game, they might not have been in this situation that we are looking at now. There, there's nobody to blame for this. And uh, the only only thing I can say, or the only team that we can blame for that, or the only team that Pakistan can blame is them, they themselves. Because they've, they've put themselves into such a, a situation after playing a terrible first game. They knew that uh, the net run rate is going to make a huge difference. They certainly played a poor game the first up. It's, it's totally up to them on what they did. They, they did the same thing against India as well. So I don't think they can blame anyone for it. Net run rate, it's a really complicated scenario. And this is one, one reason I want to get rid of it, because I don't think many people actually really understand how it's calculated. But it's total runs scored divided by the total overs you've faced, minus the total runs conceded by your bowlers divided by the total overs you've bowled. And like I say, there is that caveat that if you bowl out with inside your 50 overs, it's divided by 50 overs regardless. So if you bowl out for, I don't know, 21 inside four overs, it's still divided by 50 overs. Akash, you said just then that it is a reflection on how well you play. Now it's not. And I'll, t- I'll give you an example of why it's not. Cricket World Cup 2015. Australia, they were all out for 151 in 32.2 overs. Bad score, didn't use up the 50 overs. New Zealand, they chased down that total in 23.1 overs. So you could say, yeah, fair enough. They chased it down quicker than Australia. So they deserve to get a little bit of a boost there on that run rate. But they'd lost nine wickets in doing so. And it was one of the best matches of Cricket World Cup 2015. They just managed to creep home with their last wicket partnership to get past Australia. Now, you're not telling me on that day there was too much between those two sides. Yes, Australia had been skittled for 151. But New Zealand had nearly been bowled out for exactly the same total and just managed to get home by one wicket in that game. Now, the net run rate changes as a result of that match. Australia were minus 3.8 and New Zealand were plus 3.8, purely because New Zealand hadn't been bowled out and Australia had. And that was the only difference, really, in that game. Pakistan's game against the West Indies, yes, they played badly and they deserve to get a minus net run rate for it, but it seems to penalise adversely teams that are bowled out within their 50 overs. And that's a, a big problem for me because, like in that Australia-New Zealand game, there's nothing between those two sides. It's a cracking game, one of the best entertaining matches of that tournament, and New Zealand just managed to squeak home, and it is a massive squeak. But their net run rates are hugely disproportionately changed as a result of that. It just changes the nature of the way this World Cup's played. It's encouraged negative cricket towards the end of a lot of the matches where fans are there to try and see teams trying to win. 
this is an important tournament. It's a tournament designed to entertain the public. And I think it's impossible to a large proportion of the fans, unless you're carrying a calculator around with you permanently, to actually understand what's happened. I heard some very intelligent people today trying to discuss what Pakistan might need to do in their last match, and nobody could really pinpoint what they had to do. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. Well, the calculation might be a little off here and there, but I think... Certainly, if you look at the, the same game, uh, New Zealand played better cricket and hence they deserved a, a plus three. And Australia did not play that well, so they deserved a minus three. They played better cricket because they won, but they were effectively nearly bowled out for exactly the same score. So why is there such a disproportionate fluctuation in the net run rate? And that's what I'm saying. I don't know exactly about the calculation, but I'm saying that uh, net run rate should be there. It should not be abolished. So the point I'm trying to make is that net run rate works in a tournament like this because uh, at most point in the tournament, we see teams with uh, the same number of points. And if, for example, the, the matches between them has been abandoned, then, then, then there's no head-to-head that you can calculate on. So certainly at that uh, scenario, net run rate makes a huge difference. And also if, when you're looking at a long tournament, net run rate usually makes a, a huge difference to a team's chances of qualifying than a team's chance of being eliminated. So it's totally upon the team to play out 50 overs or to, to bowl the opposition out between 50 overs. It, 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 that, it, that's the bonus that they get for a good victory. If there's no bonus for a good victory, I don't think we would see good victory. Right. I'm going to suggest something in a, in a minute which will give you a bonus for a good victory. But I think in that Pakistan-West Indies situation, Pakistan had been hamstrung throughout the whole of the rest of the tournament from one bad performance. Yes, it was a very bad performance, but they'd never been able to recover their net run rate because of one performance out of nine. And that, to me, isn't the right way of doing it. There are alternatives to net run rate, and we, we see towards the end of tournaments that other dividers are introduced, you know, head-to-heads most wins, all those kind of things. And there's deficiencies in all of these as well. You know, most wins, Sri Lanka, two no results this tournament. You know, if it's most wins, they're not going to have most wins, are they? And they, they were out of this tournament a couple of uh, a round ago because their most wins was never going to actually match the teams around them. Head-to-head. Now, it's fine to an extent, but if that's your one bad game of the tournament, say Pakistan-West Indies, ended up on level points towards the end of this tournament. Pakistan played really well since that game. They come through, charge towards a potential semi-final. They end up level on points with the West Indies and they're hamstrung for a game that happened right at the start of the tournament. And also with the head-to-heads thing, it becomes an absolute nightmare. If there's three or four teams on the level on points, how do you work out the head-to-heads from there? I've heard people suggest wickets lost against wickets taken. I can see merits in that. Numbers of sixes have been suggested. I've even heard people suggesting dance-off or mascot races, but they're more of a a frivolous kind of suggestion there. But if we were to go away from that run rate, and I'll I'll bring you in now, Ollie. A, what is your immediate response to what myself and Akash have been saying? And if we were to go away from that run rate, is there anything head-to-heads, most wins, sixes, etc., that would appeal to you as a divider? Because we were were sort of mentioning this before we we came on the podcast, I was was having a little bit of a think because I never really sort of considered the pros and cons of, of net run rate because it's going to potentially be largely irrelevant in this competition itself but in other competitions it will be very relevant and that's when it will be scrutinised. I think for the exact example that you mentioned James the the Australia-New Zealand game where you know it can be one of the closest games in, in ODI history basically. You know a team chasing down a score, nine down and the other team could be punished as badly as they were proves that it is perhaps you know far from 
an efficient way of judging the effectiveness of a cricket team throughout a tournament. In terms of the alternative methods that I would offer, I think head-to-head works a lot, lot better. I know you were saying if it proves to be your one bad game out of nine or whatever, you kind of have to suck it up and say, look, we didn't perform well against that team and, and they've finished with the same amount of points of us, so therefore we're going out. So in answer to the question, I think head-to-head is absolutely the best way forward. The problem then becomes if you get sort of three teams on a tie and they've all beaten each other, then what do you have as the deciding factor? And and ultimately, I don't know the answer to that. In theory, in this kind of format, or in, in even if you were to split the groups into two or whatever, that shouldn't really be a, a huge a huge concern. But yeah, I, I do think head-to-head is, is the way to go about it because nobody can really feel aggrieved if they finish on the same points as somebody else, but they've beaten them during the group stages. You just kind of have to say, look, we, we lost we lost to them and ultimately we're going out. How about this then, chaps? I found this on the internet. It was written during the last World Cup, probably as a reaction to the Australian-New Zealand game. And it was written by Peter Foster. So I'm not going to claim any credit for this, but I, I think it's a really good idea. And he's talking about using the Duckworth-Lewis calculation in a kind of goal difference kind of tiebreakery way. And the way you would do that is if you bat first and you win by 50 runs, for example, you get plus 50 in that column. If you bat second, it's obviously harder to, to work out. So you calculate using the Duckworth-Lewis predictions. So if you bat second and win and you chase down a score, Duckworth-Lewis is capable of taking your score on to what it would have been after 50. So if you are chasing, say, 230, you chase it down in the 40 overs, but Duckworth-Lewis says that your score would have gone on and you would have made 280 by the end of your 50 overs on the wickets lost and the conditions of the game, you'd get plus 50 for that win as well. And that, to me, makes a lot of sense. Obviously, the reverse would be true for the team that lost. You'd get minus 50. In a rain-reduced game, you can still calculate the scores up to 50. Because, say it's reduced to 35 overs, you just extrapolate that up to 50 overs. But you get a far more accurate reflection of the game that has been played in front of you. Because in that Australia-New Zealand game, for example, where Australia had been bowled out for 151, you can't tell me that New Zealand's final tally of runs would have been much more than the 152 for nine that they, they ended up with. Maybe Duckworth Lewis would have taken them up to 158, which means they would have got a plus seven from that result. Australia would have got a minus seven from that result, and both teams would have moved on, New Zealand with the points, but Australia without being massively hamstrung for the rest of the competition. Obviously, they went on and won the competition, but that's regardless. Seems to be a far better way of doing it. I wouldn't agree with you on the Duckworth-Lewis calculation because at times we constantly question if the Duckworth-Lewis calculation is right or not. And then at the end of the day, it's going to be a similar calculation to the net run rate and uh, how net run rate has evolved. But I think net run rate has it more complete. It has more elements to it than uh, the, the, the one-sided dimension that we're looking through, the Duckworth-Lewis. So we, we're just talking about one or two games, right? So when we talk about multiple games, then that's where I think like a lot of sides know that going into the tournament, net run rate is going to play a huge difference. They know that losing a bad game means they're going to be hit. And uh, it's certainly, they, they, they do, do the calculations well as the other teams. So I don't think net run rate should be completely taken out, but it could be modified. I don't think it can be modified with the Duckwood-Lewis calculations. It should be modified, but I, I don't know how it could be modified. Obviously, we know the results that have happened since that Pakistan-West Indies game. But if Pakistan, off the back of that West Indies game, had beaten India by chasing down 360 in the final over, and then they'd done exactly the same against Australia and England and some of the best teams in the tournament, their net run rate wouldn't have changed dramatically as a result of any of those wins. But because they've lost once against the West Indies, they're completely behind everybody else. 
because of one bad performance. And that's what net run rate does. It penalises one bad performance. Whereas with the Duckworth-Lewis thing, you've got a realistic chance of coming back. Duckworth-Lewis is on the scoreboard. People are much more able to work out what it means in terms of the overall tournament. And you can move on from a defeat. It just makes sense to me that you know it, it doesn't hamstring a team just because of being skittled once in a really bad way. I get the point that you're trying to say, but then we still haven't figured out the right way to it. So uh, no, I just told you it. No, but I don't think that's the right way. We've, we've still not figured. Uh, we've not tested it out. So un- until we have tested something out, I don't think we know that it's the right way. Okay, let me tell you another thing. If if the team is minus 1.36 after first or second game, it's it's a kick at the back and to know that they should play better cricket. That's kind of motivating them to play better cricket than, than mostly say that they've already lost hopes on how to get back. So I, I don't think is that situation. We still haven't figured a solution to it. But if whatever you said uh, kind of becomes the future, I'll be happy with it. But we have not tested it out, so it's really nothing to say at, at the moment now. I think it's definitely a lot better than, than using the current net run rate system. However, as Akash mentioned, there is a lot of, I don't know, discrepancies regarding regarding Duckworth-Lewis. In terms of the way of deciding it on a game-by-game basis, I agree that that would be the fairest way to go about it. And I also like the idea of it being not net run rate, but in terms of a net run sort of thing, as you mentioned, a, a team that might have been changed chasing down the score and, and would have got seven more, for example. That's a pretty good way of doing it. Uh, I think anything must be better than the net run rate at this point because of how skewed it is towards whether you bowl the team out within 50 overs. Some people would like it that way. I still feel like, after having heard you two talk about it, I still feel like a head-to-head system is, is definitely the way to go about it. And then, as a, as a backup system, if you have got three teams that are tied for points, then you might go to kind of other system. There's no way that you can turn around and say, you finish tied with the team on point but you've lost to them in the group stages and 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 feel like you've been hard done by because ultimately you, you were worse you might, than that team on that day you might have played better against all the other seven sides in the competition then might you you might have been, yeah but in the final table it's the judge of your overall performance in the competition not against that one side isn't it yeah but if you picked up eight points and the other team picked up eight points who's to decide who played better during that group stage than the other team that's when it should because you might come down to head to head because you might have picked it up does, four narrow wins but it does, five so shall we start awarding three points to teams who beat Australia and one point to teams who beat Afghanistan? There's no way of judging who should who should get more reward for beating other teams. Ultimately, you play nine group games, you get as many points as you can on the board. If you finish tied with a team, then it should come down to who won that game. That That's as simple as that. I think we agree to disagree on this one. All three of us have got different <laughs> views on this one. It, it shows where we stand with this. It's a convoluted, complicated thing. Discover one of the most beautiful lifestyle resorts in the Caribbean at the Accra Beach Hotel and Spa. Located on the south coast of Barbados, this beachfront property offers 224 rooms, sparkling pools, four restaurants, three bars, an on-site spa, event and conferencing facilities, and a welcoming team providing unparalleled relaxation to make your stay a memorable one. What are you waiting for? Book your reservation at this award-winning hotel today and experience the Caribbean dream. Let's look back at the, the week that we've just had. 
and let's look at the champagne moment for that week. And I'm going to give it to that Jadeja catch because we've seen some superb catches in this tournament, but I thought that one was just spectacular. That was hit hard by Jason Roy. He was finding the middle of the bat. He leathered that down to the long on boundary. Jadeja had to move quite a distance to his left. He had to dive to his left. He had to dive forward to attack the ball. He managed to get his hands on it and keep hold of it. Chris Wokes pulled off a superb catch as well for England, but I thought that Jadeja catch was just something special. So that is my champagne moment of the week. Certainly Jadeja is a good shout out, but I think it would be Steven Smith and his leg spin. We've not seen Steven Smith bowl uh, leg spin for a long time now, and he came on and he took Grand Holmes' wicket. So I think that was a real champagne moment. It's something with, that we didn't look for and something that happened. So certainly mine would be uh, Steven Smith's wicket. My champagne moment, I've kind of wanted to squeeze this one in for some time and it, it finally happened today. My champagne moment was something that is obviously personal to, to a lot of us Yorkshire supporters. Seeing Johnny Bairstow reach his 100 today against New Zealand and the absolute outpouring of emotion that came. You know, he always gestures to the sky in memory of his dad. Today, it just felt like there was a little bit more behind it because he knew he was doing it on the biggest stage of all so far in his international career in a huge game. He played an outstanding knock. He got there in the best way. And like I say, it just felt like the, the whole ground was behind him and he put 100% into that into that celebration and the outpouring of relief so that for me was like a massively touching moment and that's what the champagne moment's all about it's something that makes you yourself feel feel all that kind of emotion hasn't he let down the english public though ollie because obviously the english public <laughs> wants him to lose and he's, he's making them win well i, I was actually going to mention that about his comments in the lead up it's funny for me because i personally think that if anybody was going to come out and say the kind of things that he did it would be johnny bearstone i think he was well within his rights to come out and say that because ultimately he's not the captain he, he he has a role of responsibility but not of great responsibility so he kind of has a has a license in the media to come out and say it say it how he sees it and i think he was right to call out michael vaughan for what he said myself included you know but we're we're just sort of on a on a podcast we just tend to chat nonsense um you two excluded but um yeah it, it's one of the, it's one of those where you know especially based on a week ago where it is very doom and gloom because that is the nature of english sport fans we always expect everything to fall from underneath us the problem when that extends into the mainstream media is that it filters through to the players and they are well within their rights to suggest that if you want if you were the people that were writing articles before this world cup saying why this england team shouldn't fear anybody why they should go into any game expecting to beat their opposition you can't then completely turn the tides after two games where where things haven't gone right or whatever and then then we win two games and all of a sudden everything's back in the right direction yeah i, I would say the comments did cause a bit of a stir but for probably the right reason based on the two results that we've had. His comments were that people in England were waiting so they could moan. And I think people in England were waiting for England to win and were disappointed. So were deflated and reacted that way. And I think, you know, if you're Michael Vaughan or if you're any journalist in the in the country, you give England credit in the run-up to the tournament for getting to world number one. But you can't just watch them lose twice quite timidly and not actually say that it was a bad performance. You've got to, you've got to speak the truth, haven't you? Yeah, I guess that's where editorial freedom comes into it to an extent where, you know, you do have to be objective and you kind of have to, like I said earlier, you say it how you see it kind of thing. There, there were definitely a lot of 
a lot of England fans, especially, who were saying, here we go again, kind of thing. We, you know, all this expectation leading into the tournament and a couple of bad performances and ravels and obviously we win that game against India. I think it certainly would have been a, what they call a hot take at that point to say, right, let's put the brakes on and see that there's still massive flaws within this team, which is it's fair enough. It's kind of an analytical way of looking at it. But in the scheme of things, the way that a, a World Cup tournament should work is it should be very sensationalised. It should be reactionary. That's the way that the media are always going to go because that's the way that they sell papers. That's the way that they get clicks on their website. All I'm saying is I, I don't necessarily disagree with some of the articles that have come out in the last few days about England's roller coaster nature in major tournaments. And I don't disagree with Johnny Bairstow for addressing those either. I think that's kind of the balance that you that you have to... And, and when you're going out there and answering those critics on the field like Johnny Bairstow has done, you can't possibly have a grievance with him. He's answered his cricket, cricket, his, cricket, his critics perfectly um, with two back-to-back centuries. And we're going to move on to the batting performance of the week, and that is mine, Johnny Bairstow. Back-to-back centuries for England. He's the first Englishman to do that in a World Cup. He's been absolutely glorious. He's come out, he's a little bit tentative towards the start of his innings against India, but he made up for it very, very quickly. Superb knock there, and today against New Zealand, I thought it was even better. I think he's been superb this week. So Johnny Burstow is my batsman of the week. Yeah, you've, you've nicked mine, basically, but... Um... My batsman of the week was also going to be Johnny Bairstow, in particular that 111 that he hit against India. Such a crucial time, sort of your country needs you kind of territory. Stepped up, amazing innings, absolutely amazing knock. Then he's done it again today against New Zealand. So there's there's no way you can pick anybody other than him. Like I, I put him in at the start of the tournament for a potential... Uh, leading run scorer and I think we've seen in these last few days exactly why he can be just that he's showing such a like a level-headed mature kind of nature that that we haven't really seen with best uh, in the past in in big games for England but now it gives you all the confidence going into the semi-finals that he could be the guy you know ask Ollie a question this week his answer is Johnny Bairstow we'll see, we'll see if he comes up with the same one with the bowler probably not Akash, your batsman of the week. I might, might go different on this one. Uh, I certainly find Johnny Bairstow's both innings really fascinating and uh, really wonderful. But I think one batsman that really caught my eye this week was Avishka Fernando. The way he played against the, that West Indies attack after being put under such pressure, being a youngster in a Sri Lankan outfit, uh, after so much criticisms of the team, I, I think he played really well. His knock probably won them the game more than the bowling. So my pick would be Avishka Fernando. We'll come straight back to you, Akash, for the bowler of the week. If I had to pick one for this week, it would be Bumrah and the game would be Bangladesh vs India. At the way he, uh, way he bowled in, at, uh, in the death overs under pressure was excellent. And there is only one bowler in the world who can do that apart from him. And that is Mitchell Stark. So mine would be Bumrah this week. Ali? Yeah, Johnny Bairstow all day. So, uh, for this one, only only one for me, uh, Mitchell Stark, 5-26 against New Zealand. Absolutely devastating spell. He didn't even finish his 10 overs. Uh, I think he bowled 9.4. He's just absolutely on fire at the moment, isn't he? He's, he's the one match winner that I really fear if we were to face Australia in the semi-finals, if it were to work out that way, or if we'd have to go on and face them in the final. Mitchell Stark has the ability to, to win the game on his own, and that was a prime example of it. Just he didn't swing in Yorker, and it's basically unplayable. You, you've picked the two best seamers in the world, haven't you, you two? Um, I'm going to go with one that's probably just slightly behind them, but still a very, very good bowler. Same match that uh, Mitchell Stark took the five for. 
Trent Bolt, four for 51, including a hat-trick towards the end and the second hat-trick of this World Cup and became the first New Zealander to take a hat-trick in a World Cup game. I think he's a superb bowler as well. Those uh, in-swinging Yorkers from him, he seems to have that ball on a bit of string. So three very good bowlers there in Jasper Brummer, Mitchell Stark and Trent Bolt catching our attention this week. We're offering you the opportunity to play your part in the growth of the Cricket Badger podcast. We have quite literally gone through the roof in terms of listeners over the last year. And there's an opportunity for you to get your business in front of the cricket world by sponsoring or advertising on the Cricket Badger podcast. We're giving away headline sponsorship and also a maximum of four adverts per week. Get yourself on the Cricket Badger podcast. Get yourself in front of our fantastic listeners and help the podcast continue to grow. We've had some fantastic guests over the last year. I've lost count of the number of test caps and captains that we've had. Some great stories too. And you could be alongside those big names, offering your services to the cricket world. Get in touch, cricketbadger at hotmail.com or telephone James on 077-999-64812 to grab this with both hands. Don't let it drop through your fingers. Let's move on, chaps, then, finally, to looking ahead to the week to come. We're slightly reduced because we're getting towards the end of this World Cup. It's quite sad. Before we go into the games, and we've only got four to pick from, we'll look back at uh, our little battle between the three of us. And I'm going to gloss over my performance this week because I'm basically trying to play catch-up. And I've gone for a few outsider bets, and they've not landed for me, so it's not looking particularly great. I'm on 181.1. Ollie, you're in second. You're on 236.8. And Akash, you have got a very, very narrow lead, 240.75. So congratulations to you for now for leading the line. But we've got four matches plus the three knockout games to come. And I obviously need to remind you as well that when we come to our review programme and we do our final tally up, we've got our pre-tournament bets too. And I've gone through those today. Yeah, I haven't got a life. I've got nothing better to do. Um, three of your picks, Ollie, are dead because your players are out of there, but you've got plenty that are still going for you. And one that's landed in Afghanistan can't finish anything other than bottom of the table. Two of mine are dead, none have landed. And four of Akash's picks are dead, and his Afghanistan to finish bottom pick has landed as well. So you've got one tick each in your pre-tournament bet so far. They could all change because there's a few interesting picks in there that effectively the semi-finals and the final will change and decide for us and it could alter the final standings. Whoever wins gets to uh, donate some money to charity as well so it's all for a good cause and we need to start thinking about what our charities are too. So for next week's programme I need you to come armed with a particular charity that's going to benefit from you winning this tournament if you do. Let's move on then to the week ahead or the four games ahead and we start with a game between... Afghanistan and the West Indies, which is at Headingley tomorrow, because we're recording this Wednesday night after the England game. Afghanistan are priced at 3-1. to one. West Indies are 2-9 to nine to win this. Just before you give your picks, I'd like to just remind you that we've also got these four games. So seven games left to pick from. Ollie, you've got one joker left. Akash, you've got one joker left. And I've got two jokers left play. And that doubles up our stake, so we could get double bubble if uh, our selections win. But uh, going back to the Afghanistan-West Indies game, start with you, Ollie. Where are you going to go with your 
five units on that. This is quite a difficult one to call, and I picked Afghanistan to lose all nine group. Oh, I mentioned that they might lose all nine group games, but I'm feeling a bit, I don't know what it is, festive fun maybe, whatever. I'm going to pick Afghanistan. I quite like that price, and I've just seen a pig fly outside my window, so that might have something to do with it. But yeah, I'm going with Afghanistan. Why not? Well, I'm going to go the same way. It might not surprise you to go with my boys. They've been getting gradually better as the tournament's gone on. They've got so close. It's just that little bit of tournament now, isn't it, that's not got them across the line at times. In the, some very close games against India and Pakistan, notably, I think the West Indies will be on the beach. So the 3-1 to one for me on Afghanistan, and I'm going to use one of my remaining jokers as well to try and double that up. I'm going with Afghanistan as well, because last time Afghanistan faced West Indies was in the qualifier where Afghanistan won by seven wickets. And I think it's going to be a similar match uh, at Leeds because last time we saw the match at Leeds, it was turning. And we know how strong Afghanistan are when the pitch is in their favor. Uh, so I think the spin is going to be a huge part. It's going to play a huge part tomorrow. And uh, certainly that's, that's going to shape it in Afghanistan's favor. We'll come straight back to you, Akash, with the Pakistan-Bangladesh game, which is Friday's fixture. Pakistan are 1-2, to 13-8 to eight for Bangladesh. Neither side has any realistic chance of qualifying. Obviously, Pakistan do have a ridiculous day. They could just sneak into the semi-finals, but it would have to be world record-breaking, I think, to, for them to get into the semis. But which way are you going to go on that game? I'm going with Bangladesh because they've uh, throughout the tournament, they've played much better cricket, much better all-round cricket than having a really good day and then having a really piss poor day. So I think it's, I'm going with Bangladesh. Bangladesh for me too at 13 to 8. And Ollie? Yeah, I'm going to go with Bangladesh as well. Pretty boring in that we all agree on the first two games. But yeah, I fancy Bangladesh too. Obviously, Pakistan are basically out at this point. They need a ridiculous win in order to hear progression. I think Bangladesh will just be equally as fired up to go out there and end the tournament on a high, really. That Pakistan, I mean, you'd think they're going to try and do the undoable. And if they do win the toss and bat first, it could go one or two ways, couldn't it? They could rack up 415, it could be amazing, or they could be bowled out for about 23 and a bit to try and get up to a, a huge score. So it's going to be interesting to see that game on Friday, despite the fact that it's, for all intents and purposes, a dead rubber in this competition. Let's move on to Saturday then, where the group stages finish. And it's Sri Lanka against India is the early start on Saturday. Sri Lanka are 5-1, to one, India are 1-7. to seven. We'll go with you, Ollie, first. Yeah, as much as I like Sri Lanka at that price, I'm going to have to go with India. I, you know, in, India are, are going to win that. I don't think Sri Lanka are by any means as, as poor as you've made out throughout this tournament, James, to be fair. I think that what they're showing is actually quite a lot of resolve and, and their points total will reflect that. I, yeah, I'm back in India in this game. It'll be it'll be an, an amazing atmosphere for them. But yeah, the, the price isn't great, but I just want my state back. I agree, actually. I think Sri Lanka have got better, if anything, as this tournament's gone on. I'm tempted by them, actually. I think, you know, India haven't really got anything to play for other than to try and put pressure on Australia against South Africa later on. I think I might use my second joker. It's probably the biggest price of today, available for me today, and my chance of getting back up alongside you guys at the top end of the table. Joker on Sri Lanka to beat India at 5-1 to one for me. Akash. Can I, if I, if I may, uh, add a joker on Bangladesh to win against Pakistan? And then moving into this game, I think... Uh, it's India for me. The safest bet. Final group game. This Cricket World Cup, by the time this game finishes, we've only got three games left. Australia against South Africa. Australia, if they win this, they will guarantee themselves top berth and they tie at Old Trafford against New Zealand. 
and taking on the South Africans who have effectively, they seem to have been out of this competition for so, so long, Akash, your picks to win it. They are on the beach and have been for some time now. Can they restore some pride? I'm going to go with South Africa at 15 to 8 purely to try and get a little bit of value out of that market, but I do genuinely think that Australia will win it. Just for the value, I think uh, South Africa may win it and spice things up. We might see a few changes in the table, but uh, I mean, I'm mean, i just hopeful of the price. It, it looks very tempting for me, so I'm going with South Africa. I think it would be good for England if uh, South Africa did beat Australia after India had beaten Sri Lanka, because that would mean it would be Australia-England at edge-busting with a, a partisan crowd behind England, so that could change the perspective of the semi-finals potentially. Ollie, finish with you, the last pick of this week. Australia 2-5 to five or South Africa 15-8? to eight. In this one, I'll, I'll take Australia. I don't know why, I just think South Africa have had such a dismal tournament and, and Australia will be using that for a bit of a fi- an opportunity to fine-tune and also make sure that you know, they, they go, into the, go into the semi-finals with the, with the most momentum that they can. And also, it's one of those where if Australia were to win the toss and bat first, could rack up a substantial score. And then if it's because it's a day-night game, especially at Old Trafford, I, I think South Africa would find it very difficult. So I'm taking Australia in that. It'll be interesting, isn't it? Saturday's games will decide those semi-final lineups. Will it be India or Australia? England play at Edgbaston on Thursday. Will it be India or Australia that take on New Zealand at Old Trafford in the other semi-final? We're nearly at the end of this World Cup, fellas. We've got, effectively, we can discount Pakistan, I think, with anything other than fantasy in our hearts. Of the four teams still standing, start with you, Akash. Who takes the trophy? England, Australia, India or New Zealand? Probably tilted in favour of Australia. Ollie, what about you? I'm going to stick with India. I think that they look like the most complete lineup, minus the expectation and minus this kind of here we go again nature. I just, I just feel like they're they're going to do it again. Trust me, Ollie. There is massive expectation on India. There's millions and millions of people back home who are uh, very much expectant that India are going to bring that trophy back. There is, I would imagine, equal pressure on India as there is on uh, England to win this tournament. I'm sticking with England, head and heart. I've been with them from the start. I see no reason to change now. So England for me. So three different picks there. I think probably the right four into the semi-finals. They've all got massive strength. They've all got a few weaknesses as well. And we'll see which ones uh, outweigh the other as we go through to the final on the 14th of July. Akash and Ollie, thank you very much again. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And thank you to everybody out there for listening. Join us again. We're going to be back on Sunday evening, actually, because we'll come back after the final group games played on Saturday to give our perspective on the semi-finals and a look forward to the finals with Cricket 365 and Paddy Power. So until then, enjoy your cricket. Enjoy the rest of this World Cup. It's been a fantastic tournament. Gamble responsibly if you follow us on any of the tips that we have. And we'll see you Sunday evening. Podcast Network. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. 
By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done.